Expectations of a pickup in the global economy, a recovery for aviation following the 737 MAX crisis, and the continued consequences for private equity in the region from Abraj's collapse will all likely be features of the landscape in 2020. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National's newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Happy to say with us today is Mina Al-Arabi, the National's Editor-in-Chief. Hi, Mina. Hi, Mustafa. Now, business-wise, because if we start talking geopolitics, we'll never stop. Um, how are you feeling going into 2020? I'm quite positive in some ways because there was so much concern in 2019 that we're going to hit a recession and we haven't, thank God, and hopefully we won't in 2020. It's quite good. And also here in the UAE, some exciting times ahead, especially with Expo coming in. I thought we'd sort of try and and glean what to expect, at least in the first few months of of next year or this year, if you're listening to us in 2020, um, to give us an idea um, of what might be the most intriguing and significant developments. We thought we'd look back at some of the Business Extra's coverage from 2019. Um, We think they could be really, really interesting. Uh, So I thought we'd start in April um, when I was in Bahrain and I spoke with uh, Nouriel Rubini. He's a professor of economics at NYU Stern School of Business. He's also the chief executive of Rubini Macro Associates. He's also called Dr. Doom, which I think you know why. Yes. Because he correctly predicted uh, the financial crisis 10 years ago, although no one paid any attention. So I think it's a bit mean to call him Dr. Doom. Yeah, I think that that is a very unfair nickname for him, but also the repercussions from that financial crisis still live with us today. So it's always useful to hear from him what he saw then and and how he sees the world today. Well, interestingly, he was fairly optimistic, at least relevant, uh, relatively to how his predictions usually go. Um, and he thought, even back then in April, that we wouldn't get into a full-blown recession. And he was uh, one of the few voices to have said that at the time. That's right. That's right. He actually had seven reasons why there, at worst, it would be a slowdown. It wouldn't be a full recession. So uh, maybe we'll have a listen to uh, some of those reasons now. I read a piece you wrote in Project Syndicate, or that was on Project Syndicate, about how you, you compared slowdown versus recession yeah. for the global economy. Has yeah. it, I mean, do you, so far, I know it hasn't been long since you wrote that, but do you, do you feel it's playing out that there's unlikely to be um, mm-hmm. anything beyond, beyond the slowdown? Yeah, you know, I mean, um, maybe it's going to remain just a slowdown rather than the risk of an outright recession because of the downside risk. One was China. I've just spent a week there. And I would say they've done another stimulus. Growth is going to stabilize. So um, so China, all in all, is not going to be a source of uh, additional concerns. Second risk was uh, risk of a trade war between U.S. and China. Looks like Trump and Xi Jinping are going to reach a deal. May take a few more weeks. That avoids a full-scale trade war. Is bad for them, bad for the world and the markets. Then good news. Three. I was just um, in London. Three days. You know, in Europe they worry about hard Brexit. Mm. I know one thing for sure: there will not be hard Brexit. Whether it be soft Brexit or reversal or second referendum, we don't know. But neither side can afford something's going to lead to a trade shock, a business confidence shock financial market shock. So that's good news for Europe and the world. Um, for the US was threatening tariffs on Europe, Japan, Korea on autos. I think that under the threat of tariffs, they'll sit down and do negotiations. 
as long as that happens, that's good news. Fifth, uh, central bank has become very dovish, Fed, ECB, BOJ, all of them, that helps economies and markets. Sixth, uh, in Q4 you have risk off, market sharply down, but uh, now that central banks are more dovish and global growth looks like it's stabilizing rather than recession, markets are risk on, they've gone up a lot. That's positive. And finally, you know, risk from the US and Trump is not going to be impeached. So the risk is does crazy and things in the US become totally unstable domestically in a way that then creates uh, international instability, probably is contained. So, you know, I would say, you know, he's always a little bit uh, but volatile, in, in but uh, uh, US policies are not going to be a major source of global volatility. And so, do you, know, do you see that through to 2020 as well? Beyond, beyond this year? Well, you know, until the election, my view is, you know, he wants a stable economy. He wants a dovish Fed. This is Donald Trump a, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. He wants a stable stock market. He doesn't want a massive trade wars. He's not going to even do another government shutdown. He's going to make noises about migration on the border, but he's not going to shut down the border. So, you know, he can talk and bark, but if as long as he barks and he doesn't bite, U.S. is sort of growing 2%. That's good enough. Less of it, markets um, discount all the tweets as being noise. And what matters is actual policies. The actual policies are not great, but they're not totally disastrous. So the Trump risk is also contained. So, you know, on all these dimensions, I would say I've written a piece on how, depending on these factors, things can really go bad or can improve. I would say at the margin they improve. You know, it's still new mediocre, synchronized global slowdown. Not a great global economy, but hey, as long as we can avoid a, a crash, a meltdown, a recession, is good enough, right? Uh, that was uh, Nouriel Roubini talking to me in Bahrain in April about the global economic picture. Um, Mina, he was—he sort of have, he has a mixed report card on what he got right and what he didn't get got, get right. But I, I think he kind of overall, in terms of no recession and a slowdown, he, he was spot on, actually. He was spot on, and he was quite measured in what he was saying. And in reality, that's what we needed to hear, actually, in April. So it was good to hear it then. And when we think about how 2019 has panned out, growth has slowed down, but all the predictions for 2020 is that at least in most uh, countries, you're going to have slow growth, but you're going to have growth. So you're not going to dip down, which is very important. Here in the region, we're looking at growth about 2% or so. The big, big question is about China, but China seems to have steadied. And we know that now that crazy growth of double digits is behind China, which is natural, a natural progression. And so it feels more like an economic cycle than the doom that people were scared of. Uh, Professor Rubini was talking about the significance of an election year in the United States as we head towards what could be a re-election of Donald Trump or a new president. But in any case, whatever the the atmosphere is like, that the White House wouldn't want to rock the boat and would want to try and do everything it could to keep markets going, which it has done, uh, to get a trade deal with China, which we're in the first stages of. So again, he, it's sort of panning out where he thinks that despite Donald Trump's rhetoric – that his policies would actually try to stabilize the economic picture. Absolutely. And if you're Donald Trump, you're going to make sure in every capacity that you can, that on the day of the election and the days preceding the election, you have very good market results, 
because that will encourage people to continue with good economic forecasts. Now, that doesn't mean that those who are on lower wages are not being squeezed and doesn't mean that there aren't problems with the American economy. But by large, no one can deny that Donald Trump has been good for the markets in the U.S. And he's definitely going to want to maintain that trend and really ramp it up in the final quarter of next year or 2020 this year, if that's when you're listening to it. It'll be interesting to see what's happening with the Democrats. I believe that if somebody like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders becomes the nominee for the Democrats, markets could start to get nervous, especially if they're ahead in the polls, because they've been very strong about big business and what they want to do with big business. So you might see some volatility because of that. Yeah, the le- the left-leaning uh, rhetoric over there um, in the debates and the build-up has spooked quite a few people. Almost, if we talk about Britain, um, because Rubini mentions that as well. In Britain, the, Jeremy Corbyn, some of his plans that were outlined in the manifesto before the recent election also spooked a lot of people, particularly billionaires who are also in the tar- you know, the, the crosshairs in the US. Um, and, and Professor Rubini said that there wouldn't be a hard Brexit. Um, and so far, he's right. Um, we look like we're heading to a deal that will begin the proper withdrawal of the UK from the EU. But he indicated that he thought there might even be a reversal, which doesn't look like that's happening. But in any case, it seems like we're on a path where a return of confidence for investment in the US, in the UK, elsewhere might be coming back as as, as 2020 kicks off. For the UK, there's also the element of much more stability, even if Brexit, which it seems likely is going ahead. There isn't that fear of a hung parliament. We've had an election, which again, he had no way of knowing. Nobody could tell in April if there's going to be an election. We've had an election in the UK that's given the Conservative Party a vast majority that allows them to push forward their agenda. And of course, the Conservatives are known to be quite friendly to business. And so in some cases, that stability and having that election behind us and making sure that the Tories are strong is going to make the UK much more attractive in 2020 to invest in than in 2019. And and Rubini was correct about a sort of dovish stance by the biggest central banks. The US has cut rates. That has an impact here. The dirham is pegged to the dollar. So a lot of it's played out as, as he kind of envisaged. He's a very smart guy, obviously, <laughs> um, with a good track record. But um, overall, I think what people are looking for now in 2020 isn't just not a recession, but people, what they really want is to see a pickup. And the IMS forecasts that at least 2020 global growth should be better than 2019. That's the expectation. One of the other things you talked about is US-China. And I think the fear of a full-blown trade war between US and China, again, at the beginning of 2019, really rattled people. And as we're coming to a close of the year and we're looking towards 2020, it's comforting to know at least a phase one deal is is being uh, put together. And so he was right on that, that you wouldn't have this full uh, trade war on the contrary. He expected a deal much quicker than it's actually come about. But we'll have to see how that relationship pans out. And I think that will impact global markets, perhaps more than anything else. So uh, moving on from sort of the bigger macro picture, uh, it's been quite a challenging year for a particular industry of aviation, which is key for the Middle East, uh, North Africa. But globally, the 737 MAX tragedies turned into a full-blown industrial crisis when the entire fleet worldwide was grounded after two deadly crashes. The most recent was in March um, in Ethiopia. Um, This impacted, for example, Fly Dubai, which has a big fleet of 737 MAXs, but a lot of airlines around the world dented confidence. And, you know, 
it's connected to the macro picture because there was also a softening of demand that affected airlines and the industry. Um, the Nationals aviation correspondent, Dina Camel, she uh, back in October spoke to our feature editor, Kelsey Warner, on this podcast after she'd visited Boeing's operations in the US and found a company much affected by the fallout from the 737 MAX crashes, uh, also one that was looking to try and, and get back onto track with that um, and improve the sort of confidence in not just Boeing, but I guess, you know, the passenger market worldwide. Uh, let's hear some of Dina and Kelsey's discussion now. Our first stop was in Seattle at Boeing's Renton factory. That's the home of the 737 MAX, uh, where that jet is still being produced, even while it's grounded. Um, we also went to their Everett factory, uh, where they produce this 777X, um, known for its folding wings. Um, and then we had a brief stop in St. Louis. Just a quick signal that Dina is a huge aviation nerd. So at this manufacturing facility, they're manufacturing the biggest aircraft on Earth, basically, and they're so big, the wings have to fold. It absolutely is the biggest wingspan on any aircraft at the moment. Um, so in order to park them at airport slots, the wings actually need to fold in and go into place. So we, we saw some of that in the making. Then we had a brief uh, stop in St. Louis in Missouri, uh, where we um, took a look at Boeing's uh, fighter jets. Um, and then it was another plane to uh, our last stop at Cape Canaveral in Florida, um, where Boeing basically says, here's where we build the future. Um, this is where they're building um, their latest spacecraft, and this is where NASA launches rockets into so space. So from commercial airlines to defense industry to space flight, Boeing was really trying to give you guys a sense of what a vast company Boeing is. And why, why, did, why were you invited? Um, <laughs> great question. No we, <laughs> we were actually um, the only UAE-based media that were invited on this trip. And this is something that Boeing organizes every two years ahead of the um, Dubai Air Show, um, which is happening next month um, in November. Um, and, and this is to basically give journalists um, in-depth briefings and access to their executives mm -hmm. um, about their latest products uh, across their business sure. units. So, of course, a different tone this year, given the ongoing, I mean, it seems like there's breaking news on Boeing practically every day as the 737 MAX crisis unfolds. Can you talk a little bit about where we're at in this story? The airline is, or the aircraft is still grounded, but what, what have we found out over the last couple of weeks about this investigation? You're right. The news that unfolded over the weekend and into this week has uh, definitely meant that Boeing is facing a deeper crisis and is facing additional pressure. You know, everyone from regulators, airlines, investigators. Um, and this happened uh, after messages were leaked between two Boeing pilots. Uh, essentially raising questions about the performance of the so-called MCAS, which is the flight control system uh, that was blamed for the two crashes, um, where one of them said um, while he was um, on a 737 MAX simulator uh, that the MCAS is running rampant. Um, so that really has raised concerns on why mm -hmm. Boeing didn't share that information earlier. These messages were from November 2016, so obviously preceding the crashes. I believe it was only after they received pressure from the FAA, the U.S. Regu regulator, that they did, in fact, release the messages, which wasn't necessarily a great look for them amid public trust questions. That's that's the exact issue. It raises 
um, questions about transparency. It raises questions about um, integrity. And it has, of course, um, there was an, an outcry that ensued because, you know, it's prompted le- letters from the U.S. aviation regulator uh, demanding an explanation for this uh, from from the Boeing CEO. And, of course, it's worsened um, Boeing's uh, public image. Public image, stock price, kind of across the board, they're having to scramble. So... Absolutely. This is critical timing for Boeing as it prepares to return the MAX to the sky. So, Mina, that was uh, Dina Kamal, our aviation correspondent, speaking to Kelsey Warner. Um, Dina had been on a trip with Boeing in the U.S. She'd gone to several locations and had found a company that very much affected by the 737 MAX tragedies and subsequent crisis as well. I mean, now, you know, several months on from October, we're heading into a new year. Um, It feels like perhaps they can begin to move forward at last. Uh, That will that will be better for everyone in general. I'm not sure how much forward they can move, to be frank, because we've just recently had more news about internal messages that were kept away, that there were concerns about uh, the 737 MAXs. And, you know, we have to keep in mind, I was looking back over the the details of the two um, crashes. So on October 29, 2018, the Lion Air flight, 189 people died. And then March 10, 2019, the Ethiopia Airlines flight, 157 people died. And the fact that there were very clear messages internally in Boeing about the safety of these flights, that damage to the company's reputation, removing the CEO and putting in the chairman as CEO, so somebody who's already from within that organization, quite senior in that organization, still raises questions about safety and how transparent people are on safety issues. So I think the company's still going through that. And it's hard to see whether people will trust that Boeing has rectified a lot of these issues. Uh, 2020 will be a challenging year for them as a company in terms of image, brand, and trustworthiness. But, you know, this year, so much of it has been about transparency and people's calls for transparency across the board in different industries, but especially in the aviation industry. Uh, If we we go close to home, uh, there were some developments, uh, particularly towards the end of 2019, that really will will feel it in in 2020. For example, um, we've got the launch of two budget airlines in Abu Dhabi. I mean, we we had Air Arabia Abu Dhabi, which was exciting, and then uh, a sort of local variant of Wizz Air as well. So passengers will have even more choice either flying from or through uh, the UAE come 2020, which was perhaps not expected at the beginning of 2019 of where we were going. And it's good to see that there will be competition because ultimately when you have different airlines, even though they will largely serve different uh, destinations, there will be more competition. And that's always a healthy thing and that's a good thing. And it's part of the reason why many people are more optimistic about the economy here in the UAE in the region in uh, 2020 because it's these sorts of investments and these opportunities that are coming up. But yes, aviation industry has been interesting. We, of course, had the resignation, the announcement of the resignation of Tim Clark, uh, the 35 years of dominating the industry through Emirates as CEO of Emirates. And that's quite a moment, and we'll have to see how Emirates also 
takes shape um, and kind of the identity of the airline with one of its most senior people moving on. A- an interesting time for, for the industry in the UAE, for sure. Yeah, I mean, Tim Clark is a name very much synonymous with Emirates growth as well as Sheikh Ahmed as well. Um, they, they, were, they were results and, and Emirates looks like the financial results at the, to, towards the end of 2019. And they very much promised that 2020 would be an, a year of expansion instead of what it has been for Emirates, such a success story, but very much consolidating and stabilizing. So it's interesting that Tim Clark will retire in 2020. 2020 will also be a year of return to expansion for Emirates. You'll have the expansion of these budget airlines in Abu Dhabi. There'll be an increase in capacity naturally with the midfield terminal in Abu Dhabi coming online. I think everybody, is it a case of just do it and then the demand will come and maybe allied to maybe a better, bigger economic picture, both regionally and globally, that aviation could sort of finish 2020 in in better shape than it perhaps finished 2019. I hope so. It's interesting because, of course, the conversations around the environment, around sustainability, around travel um, has impacted some of the destinations, but I think less so here in the in the Middle East. People are still very much interested in travel. Uh, you're right, the midfit, midfield terminal, which hopefully will open in 2020, but not clear yet on that opening date for Abu Dhabi, uh, means that more passengers are expected. But of course, we also have Expo. Uh, Expo for Dubai will be hugely uh, important, but also for the rest of the UAE. And Expo is only going to be an hour's drive from Abu Dhabi. So you might see some of those uh, passengers coming through then through Abu Dhabi. Uh, moving from aviation to the financial sector, a story that it didn't start in 2019, but it really gathered steam and sort of the beginning of 2019 was the continuing unspooling of details around the collapse of Abraj, the once mighty Dubai private equity firm founded by Arif Nakvi. Um, the scandal's rocked investor confidence in general, has ramifications for sort of the demands on levels of transparency and governance going forward for anyone who's raising money inside the region or outside the region. But the, the news really was about fresh criminal charges in the US against Nakvi. Um, he's currently in the UK fighting extradition or expected to be fighting extradition over the next two years. Um, His associates have also been charged, but a lot of what we didn't know uh, about how the actual collapse came about and some of the practices behind it and how widespread it was in terms of the the individuals involved or who knew about it, um, we only came to light really at the start of 2019. In a May episode of Business Extra, Masoud Derhali, the National's business editor, who himself uh, was producing some quite compelling investigative journalism into the story, explained what happened at the failed firm. Let's listen to that now. In September 2017, about five months or so before the firm's collapse, and this was the largest private equity firm in the Middle East and and, and North Africa, uh, believed to to have managed as much as $14 billion in assets. Um, you know, so five months before in September, um, whistleblower emails um, went out warning some investors not to invest in um, Fund 6, um, you know, which was supposed to raise as much as $6 billion. Uh, um, specifically, one email on, on September 20 with a subject line of Abraj Fund 6 warning. You know, that email um, started off um, saying some friendly advice before committing to uh, the new Fund 6 do your diligence properly and, and don't believe what you're told by the partners or what you see on the slides. It's all show. Um, wow. The, the, yeah. I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not every day that 
you you expect to see an email like that. Um, and, uh, you know, that email was then subsequently um, forwarded um, from the uh, from an employee uh, of, of, of an investor in the fund um, to the Abraj founder, uh, Mr. Arif Negvi. And uh, Mark Bourgeois, who uh, was responsible for basically raising funds on behalf of Abraj in, in, the, in the U.S. And, um, and, you know, the email uh, basically also claimed that, you know, Abraj's investments in Pakistan, MENA, uh, in the MENA region and in, in Turkey, that their valuations were, were not entirely um, true. And it, it went on to urge investors to carry out you know, their own due diligence. Um, but surprisingly, um, the warnings were um, ignored uh, by a uh, um, main investor, uh, a big, I mean, a, a big investor, um, which is called Hamilton Lane and um, which is supposed to basically be a gatekeeper, do due diligence and uh, act in a kind of an advisory role to pension funds and other institutional investors. Um, and, you know, it decided that it was going to put in $100 million into the fund. And as a result, other investors were, you know, thought it was okay and um, were encouraged. And uh, according to my sources, as much as $900 million then subsequently went into uh, – into the fund as commitments, so no actual money went went into the fund, but um, you know commitments were made. When news of the uh, health healthcare fund, when there was there were question marks um, about the misappropriation of, of of funds in the healthcare fund specifically from investors like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and OPEC. And the World Bank's IFC, um, basically, Abraj was put in a position where it had to release um, the uh, investors that had committed about three billion dollars out of the six billion of the uh, six fund of their commitments. So, you know, um, there's going to be moving forward uh, quite a lot. Uh, for investors to think about moving forward uh, as they consider who they put their money with and what questions they ask. Then when in February, as you mentioned, the, those investors started investigating what happened to their money in the healthcare fund, from February, things unraveled really fast. So you had, you had two separate examinations to the alleged misuse of money, um, potential irregularities were found, were said to have been found beyond the healthcare fund. It was also suggested that money from the healthcare fund was being diverted elsewhere. There was potential discrepancies in the accounting in other areas. And so, so this all kicked off in February. By June, Abraj Holdings had filed for liquidation. Um, that was uh, myself and Masoud Derhali, the business editor, talking about Abraj, um, which we 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 don't know what kind of developments will come out but we're expecting more to to be found out really there there is a case ongoing in the US there's a lot to to be seen yet how that case will come to a close but really i think abraj was one of those stories that for us at the national was an important story to cover but also says something about the region going through some real growing pains when it comes to the financial industry but hopefully comes out on the other side with much more maturity transparency how these sorts of crises are dealt 
dealt with. So here's hoping for some sil silver lining that comes out from it. But a lot of people were hurt, especially those who were working for Abraj. Abraj, you know, had an impact on the art world here, had an impact on, you know, charity work that Arik Nagvi had. And so many, many people were hurt by this case. And we'll have to see how it comes to a close. Uh, Mina Al-Arabi, the Nationals Editor-in-Chief, thanks for being with us. And I hope you have a happy new year. Happy new year to you and our listeners. Uh, before we finish, here are some of the other stories you need to know about on the national.ae. Dubai announced a three-year fiscal plan for the Emirate with total government expenditure set to reach 196 billion dirhams, that's $53 billion, until 2022. The oil market is poised for further tightness after prices closed at a three-month high, following the threat of disruption to production facilities in Iraq and Libya. An electric vehicle manufacturer, Tesla, delivered its first fleet of 15 China-built Model 3 sedans to its employees in a special ceremony at the company's Gigafactory in Shanghai. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and leave a review. All that remains is to thank our producer, Aisha Khan, wishing you a blessed new year, and do join us again next time. <laughs>